there we go. Now, should I start over? Yeah, okay. Uh, I, don't, I don't suppose many of you were there, but I re distinctly recall coming up uh, to this worship space with B Bishop Jacobus and sitting and listening to your wonderful choir and thinking, I would sure like to worship in this church someday. Well, today is my lucky day. I get to do it not once, but three times. And uh, the price you pay for my privilege is to have to listen to these sermons. So uh, it's great to be with you. We are um, very proud of your rector, Clint Wilson and Teresa, uh, friends from the Shota House, from uh, his student days. And uh, we're very proud of your uh, daughter, Libby Garfield, who is one of our students, who we think is extraordinary, and I'm sure you do too. And, uh, and then we've made many friends uh, along the way here, so we feel a very tight bond with St. Francis in the Fields at Neshota House. And so it's a privilege to close that loop and be here today. I should say before going forward, <clears throat> the whole country um, is in prayer and thinking about Western Kentucky today and yesterday, and uh, it was very much on our minds. I understand we'll have an opportunity to respond as a parish today. I, I woke up yesterday morning to a beautiful snowfall in Wisconsin. Uh, we consider such things beautiful. Out of my window, I was overlooking a lovely wooded seminary property, uh, not unlike your beautiful property here, and I had two thoughts. One thought was, it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. And the second was, I wonder what the drive to Louisville will be like. Uh, as an almost lifelong northerner, I actually like driving in the snow. So my thoughts in, turned entirely to Christmas. And I started to stream Christmas music. Now, mind you, I live among the kind of people who take the church calendar with utmost seriousness. For these friends of mine, the incursion of Christmas tide upon Advent counts among the unforgivable sins. And every year they do everything they can to quench Christmas cheer with endless Facebook memes reminding everyone that it's not yet Christmas and that when it is Christmas it lasts for 12 days and so on and so forth. There are a lot of ways to be a Grinch, it turns out. <coughs> they are my friends. I should say, however, in fairness, my more purest friends are on to something rather important. The church calendar and the secular calendar diverge dramatically from each other just at this time of year. Well, both the church and Madison Avenue are looking forward to Christmas. The church sees Christmas only on the other side of the blessed hope of the second advent of Christ. The church thinks about Christmas also, but only through the lenses of judgment and the renewal of the earth. The joy of Christmas is prepared for in a kind of pensive minor key, so that it is fully understood that the world-changing coming of the Christ child is merely but a foreshadowing of his world-transforming return. So my Grinchy friends have a point, and I grant it, even if I don't let that stop me from listening to Christmas music too early. Now, one of the more dissonant sounds of Advent 
against the backdrop of the commercially manufactured Christmas cheer is the way that John the Baptist keeps showing up in our Advent worship. In hymns and in readings, we meet this voice crying in the wilderness. His camel's hair garment and leather belt recall the austere fashion sense of Elijah the prophet. His diet consists of locusts and wild honeys, and it makes us, kind of as we picture it in our mind's eye, wonder about him. We wonder about this wild-eyed man until he speaks, and then our fears are confirmed. When the people, presumably with good motives, come out to be baptized by them, he calls them a brood of vipers. They are children of venomous snakes. He's like, dude, I'm just trying to repent. Take it down a notch. He speaks urgently of a wrath that is to come. He speaks of an ax that is laid to the root of the tree and trees that are about to be thrown into a fire. He speaks of one who is following him with a winnowing fork in his hand, separating wheat and chaff and burning the chaff with unquenchable fire. Were he not a biblical character and a saint, or maybe even still, we might wonder if John is off his meds. We know he is not on Christmas party invitation lists. But no, John is okay. He is a truth prophet sent by God doing what prophets do. Yes, and according to Jesus himself, he is even more than a prophet. And the words of a prophet are true, and the voice of a prophet is urgent and impassioned. Yet here in this text, as is often the case in the Old Testament, the words of the prophet, though true, does not always mean that the prophet is privileged to know how his words are true. Mystery and surprise and paradox remain in the way that God unfolds his plans. Now we see that this is the case for John as we trace his story forward in the Gospels. You might remember that he ended up imprisoned for having denounced the marriage of Herod Antipas. Just a prophet doing what prophets do, but it would cost him his life. As Herod would have him beheaded at the insistence of Salome and Herodias. The story that unfolds from our gospel lesson forward is not the story John expected. It is, in fact, a better story than he, even as a prophet, could have imagined. It is a story that has us in this space today worshiping the Lord Jesus. You see, every indication is that John is heralding an imminent judgment, one coming after him who will execute the wrath that is to come and without delay, who will swing that axe that is laid to the root of the tree, who will burn the chaff with unquenchable fire. Now, mind you, as Christians celebrating Advent, John was not wrong in this expectation. His words are true, but he could not know that in the mystery of God, he was skipping a long and gracious chapter 
that would precede the eventual conclusion to this story. You see, the Take No Prisoners prophet proclaims a brook no sinners Messiah, and although he is preparing the way of the Lord, it turns out that even John himself is not entirely prepared for the ways of this Lord Jesus. As it turns out, the translation winnowing fork in this text is probably a bit misleading. His winnowing fork, that is Jesus, is in his hand. This is not, however, in the Greek, a fork, but the Greek word refers to a flat shovel. By John's understanding, the Lord for whom he prepares the way is not actually coming to separate wheat from chaff, but rather to clear the threshing floor and to send each to their chosen destination, the latter into fire. Now, in this metaphor, John can only mean that the winnowing, the separating, has already been done, and all that remains is a mop-up operation. John has already separated wheat from chaff with his message of repentance. It remains for the Lord of vengeance to bring that judgment to its fitting and awful conclusion. No wonder he can say already the axe is laid to the root of the tree. No wonder the urgency with which he calls a wayward people to repentance in the wilderness. Now, if John's picture proved too austere for the actual ministry of Jesus, it was not because John was entertaining a fantasy of his own making. He was rather telling the story as it should go. Although by interposing his offer of repentance and his offer of amnesty, he tells a more gracious version of the story than could have been anticipated. But you see, there was nothing in Jesus' early ministry that fit John's picture. The chaff seemed to love Jesus, and worse, he seemed to really love them. The threshing floor that John had so dutifully sorted out had seemingly overnight become a mixed up mess. Wheat and chaff all mixed together, though now harder to identify which was which. And in one of the more egregious breaches of John's expectations, Jesus performs favors even for Roman centurions. It seems that Jesus did not get John's memo. At best, Jesus seems to have taken John's threshing fork into the Galilean villages and left the shovel behind in the granary. It should come as little surprise then, several chapters later, that the Baptist, now in prison for his faithful testimony, should have a few questions for this Jesus whom he had baptized and for whom he had just risked his life. Are you the one who is to come, or should we wait for another? That is, from John's perspective, a rather apt question. And as we can tell from his response, Jesus takes no offense. Rather, he rewrites the messianic job description, imploring John to take no offense himself. Sometimes this later episode is thought to depict John in a season of doubt, and in some sense that may be so. 
but it trivializes John, and it actually trivializes the unexpected mercy of this Messiah, Jesus, to lay the confusion at John's feet, rather than to its actual cause, which is the extravagant and unexpected grace of Jesus to sinners. John's fault is not unbelief, but disbelief. Nor was he an eccentric crank who had it all wrong. As Jesus would say, John was no reed shaking in the wind. And John's question, his imprisonment, and his soon beheading were not the failures and shame of an uncertain man, but they bespeak the grace of a certain man who came into the world not to judge it, but that the world might be saved through him. And we are here this morning only because the one who might have been our judge came to be a friend to sinners. No one has greater love than this, but to lay down his life for one's friends. And so this Advent, we pray with John the Baptist, who calls us to repentance in view of the overwhelming mercies of God that he might give us grace that we cast away the works of darkness and put upon us the armor of light. Now in the time of this mortal life in which thy son Jesus Christ came to visit us in great humility, that in the last day when he shall come again in his glorious majesty to judge both the quick and the dead, we may rise to life and mortal. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.